Chapters six and seven of Is Shakespeare Dead by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters six and seven. Chapter six. When Shakespeare died in sixteen sixteen, great literary productions attributed to him as author had been before the London world and in high favor for twenty-four years. Yet his death was not an event. It made no stir. It attracted no attention. Apparently his eminent literary contemporaries did not realize that a celebrated poet had passed from their midst. Perhaps they knew a play-actor of minor rank had disappeared, but did not regard him as the author of his works. We are justified in assuming this. His death was not even an event in the little town of Stratford. Does this mean that in Stratford he was not regarded as a celebrity of any kind? We are privileged to assume, no, we are indeed obliged to assume, that such was the case. He had spent the first twenty-two or twenty-three years of his life there, and of course knew everybody, and was known by everybody of that day in the town, including the dogs and the cats and the horses. He had spent the last five or six years of his life there, diligently trading in every big and little thing that had money in it. So we are compelled to assume that many of the folk there in those said latter days knew him personally, and the rest by sight and hearsay. But not as a celebrity? Apparently not, for everybody soon forgot to remember any contact with him or any incident connected with him. The dozens of townspeople still alive who had known of him or known about him in the first twenty-three years of his life, were in the same unremembering condition. If they knew of any incident connected with that period of his life, they didn't tell about it. Would they, if they had been asked? It is most likely. Were they asked? It is pretty apparent that they were not. Why weren't they? It is a very plausible guess that nobody there or elsewhere was interested to know. For seven years after Shakespeare's death, nobody seems to have been interested in him. Then the quarto was published, and Ben Jonson awoke out of his long indifference and sang a song of praise and put it in the front of the book. Then silence fell again for sixty years. Then inquiries into Shakespeare's Stratford life began to be made of Stratfordians, of Stratfordians who had known Shakespeare or had seen him? No. Then of Stratfordians who had seen people who had known or seen people who had seen Shakespeare? No. Apparently the inquiries were only made of Stratfordians who were not Stratfordians of Shakespeare's day, but later comers, and what they had learned had come to them from persons who had not seen Shakespeare, and what they had learned was not claimed as fact, but only as legend, dim 
and fading and indefinite legend legend of the calf slaughtering rank and not worth remembering either as history or fiction has it ever happened before or since that a celebrated person who had spent exactly half of a fairly long life in the village where he was born and reared was able to slip out of this world and leave that village voiceless and gossipless behind him utterly voiceless utterly gossipless and permanently so i don't believe it has happened in any case except shakespeare's and couldn't and wouldn't have happened in his case if he had been regarded as a celebrity at the time of his death when i examine my own case but let us do that and see if it will not be recognizable as exhibiting a condition of things quite likely to result most likely to result indeed substantially sure to result in the case of a celebrated person a benefactor of the human race like me my parents brought me to the village of hannibal missouri on the banks of the mississippi when i was two and a half years old i entered school at five years of age and drifted from one school to another in the village during nine and a half years then my father died leaving his family in exceedingly straitened circumstances wherefore my book education came to a standstill forever and i became a printer's apprentice on board and clothes and when the clothes failed i got a hymn book in place of them this for summer wear probably i lived in hannibal fifteen and a half years altogether then ran away according to the custom of persons who are intending to become celebrated i never lived there afterward four years later i became a cub on a mississippi steamboat in the st louis and new orleans trade and after a year and a half of hard study and hard work the u s inspectors rigorously examined me through a couple of long sittings and decided that i knew every inch of the mississippi thirteen hundred miles in the dark and in the day as well as a baby knows the way to its mother's paps day or night so they licensed me as a pilot knighted me so to speak and i rose up clothed with authority a responsible servant of the united states government now then shakespeare died young he was only fifty-two he had lived in his native village twenty-six years or about that he died celebrated if you believe everything you read in the books yet when he died nobody there or elsewhere took any notice of it and for sixty years afterward no townsman remembered to say anything about him or about his life in stratford when the inquirer came at last he got but one fact no legend and got that one at second hand from a person who had only heard it as a rumor and didn't claim copyright in it as a production of his own he couldn't very well for its date antedated his own birth date 
but necessarily a number of persons were still alive in stratford who in the days of their youth had seen shakespeare nearly every day in the last five years of his life and they would have been able to tell that inquirer some first-hand things about him if he had in those last days been a celebrity and therefore a person of interest to the villagers why did not the inquirer hunt them up and interview them wasn't it worth while wasn't the matter of sufficient consequence had the inquirer an engagement to see a dog-fight and couldn't spare the time it all seems to mean that he never had any literary celebrity there or elsewhere and no considerable repute as actor and manager now then i am away along in my life my seventy-third year being already well behind me yet sixteen of my hannibal schoolmates are still alive to-day and can tell and do tell inquirers dozens and dozens of incidents of their young lives and mine together things that happened to us in the morning of life in the blossom of our youth in the good days the dear days the days when we went gypsying a long time ago most of them credible to me too one child to whom i paid court when she was five years old and i eight still lives in hannibal and she visited me last summer traversing the necessary ten or twelve hundred miles of railroad without damage to her patience or to her old young vigor another little lassie to whom i paid attention in hannibal when she was nine years old and i the same is still alive in london and hale and hearty just as i am and on the few surviving steamboats those lingering ghosts and remembrancers of great fleets that plied the big river in the beginning of my water career which is exactly as long ago as the whole invoice of the life years of shakespeare's number there are still findable two or three river pilots who saw me do creditable things in those ancient days and several white-headed engineers and several roustabouts and mates and several deckhands who used to heave the lead for me and send up on the still night air the six feet scant that made me shudder and the mark twain that took the shudder away and presently the darling by the deep four that lifted me to heaven for joy footnote four fathoms twenty-four feet and footnote they know about me and can tell and so do printers from st louis to new york and so do newspaper reporters from nevada to san francisco and so do the police if shakespeare had really been celebrated like me stratford could have told things about him and if my experience goes for anything they'd have done it chapter seven if i had under my superintendence a controversy appointed to decide whether shakespeare wrote shakespeare or not i believe i would place before the debaters only the one question 
was Shakespeare ever a practicing lawyer, and leave everything else out. It is maintained that the man who wrote the plays was not merely myriad-minded, but also myriad-accomplished, that he not only knew some thousands of things about human life and all its shades and grades, and about the hundred arts and trades and crafts and professions which men busy themselves in, but that he could talk about the men and their grades and trades accurately, making no mistakes. Maybe it is so, but have the experts spoken, or is it only Tom, Dick, and Harry? Does the exhibit stand upon wide and loose and eloquent generalizing, which is not evidence and not proof, or upon details, particulars, statistics, illustrations, demonstrations? Experts of unchallengeable authority have testified definitely as to only one of Shakespeare's multifarious craft equipments, so far as my recollections of Shakespeare Bacon talk abide with me, his law equipment. I do not remember that Wellington or Napoleon ever examined Shakespeare's battles and sieges and strategies, and then decided and established for good and all that they were militarily flawless. I do not remember that any Nelson or Drake or Cook ever examined his seamanship and said it showed profound and accurate familiarity with that art. I don't remember that any king or prince or duke has ever testified that Shakespeare was letter-perfect in his handling of royal court manners and the talk and manners of aristocracies. I don't remember that any illustrious Latinist or Grecian or Frenchman or Spaniard or Italian has proclaimed him a past master in those languages. I don't remember, well, I don't remember that there is testimony, great testimony, imposing testimony, unanswerable and unattackable testimony as to any of Shakespeare's hundred specialties, except one, the law. Other things change with time, and the student cannot trace back with certainty the changes that various trades and their processes and technicalities have undergone in the long stretch of a century or two, and find out what their processes and technicalities were in those early days. But with the law it is different. It is milestoned and documented all the way back, and the master of that wonderful trade— that complex and intricate trade, that awe-compelling trade, has competent ways of knowing whether Shakespeare law is good law or not, and whether his law court procedure is correct or not, and whether his legal shop talk is the shop talk of a veteran practitioner or only a machine-made counterfeit of it gathered from books and from occasional loiterings in Westminster. Richard H. Dana served two years before the mast, and had every experience that falls to the lot of the sailor before the mast of our day. 
his sailor talk flows from his pen with the sure touch and the ease and confidence of a person who has lived what he is talking about not gathered it from books and random listenings hear him having hove short cast off the gaskets and make the bunt of each sail fast by the jigger with a man on each yard at the word the whole canvas of the ship has loosed and with the greatest rapidity possible everything was sheeted home and hoisted up the anchor tripped and cat-headed and the ship under headway again the royal yards were all crossed at once and royals and sky sails set and as we had the wind free the booms were run out and all were aloft active as cats laying out on the yards and booms reeving the studding sail gear and sail after sail the captain piled upon her until she was covered with canvas her sails looking like a great white cloud resting upon a black speck once more a race in the pacific our antagonist was in her best trim being clear of the point the breeze became stiff and the royal masts bent under our sails, but we would not take them in until we saw three boys spring into the rigging of the California. Then they were all furled at once, but with orders to our boys to stay aloft at the top gallant mastheads and loose them again at the word. It was my duty to furl the fore royal, and while standing by to loose it again, i had a fine view of the scene from where i stood the two vessels seemed nothing but spars and sails while their narrow decks far below slanting over by the force of the wind aloft appeared hardly capable of supporting the great fabrics raised upon them the california was to windward of us and had every advantage yet while the breeze was stiff we held our own as soon as it began to slacken she ranged a little ahead and the order was given to loose the royals in an instant the gaskets were off and the bunt dropped sheet home the fore royal weather sheets home lee sheets home hoist away sir is bawled from aloft overhaul your clue lines shouts the mate ay ay sir all clear taut leech belay well the lee brace haul taut to windward and the royals are set what would the captain of any sailing vessel of our time say to that he would say the man that wrote that didn't learn his trade out of a book he has been there but would this same captain be competent to sit in judgment upon shakespeare's seamanship considering the changes in ships and ship talk that have necessarily taken place unrecorded unremembered and lost to history in the last three hundred years it is my conviction that shakespeare's sailor talk would be choctaw to him for instance from the tempest master boatswain boatswain here master 
What cheer? Master. Good. Speak to the mariners. Fall tote, yearly, or we run ourselves to ground. Be stir, be stir. Enter mariners. Boatswain. Hey, my hearts, cheerily, cheerily, my hearts, yer, yer, take in the topsail, tend to the master's whistle, down with the topmast, yer, lower, lower, bring her to try with the main course, lay her a hold, a hold, set her two courses, off to sea again, lay her off. That will do for the present. Let us yare a little now for a change. If a man should write a book, and in it make one of his characters say, Here, devil, empty the coins into the standing galley, and the imposing stone into the hell-box, assemble the comps around the frisket, and let them jeff for takes and be quick about it, I should recognize a mistake or two in the phrasing, and would know that the writer was only a printer theoretically, not practically. I have been a quartz miner in the silver regions, a pretty hard life. I know all the palaver of that business. I know all about discovery claims and the subordinate claims. I know all about loads, ledges, outcroppings, dips, spurs, angles, shafts, drifts, inclines, levels, tunnels, air shafts, horses, clay casings, granite casings, quartz mills and their batteries, arastras, and how to change them with quicksilver and sulfate of copper, and how to clean them up, and how to reduce the resulting amalgam and the retorts, and how to cast the bullion into pigs, and finally I know how to screen tailings, and also how to hunt for something less robust to do, and find it. I know the argo of the quartz mining and milling industry familiarly, and so whenever Bret Hart introduces that industry into a story, the first time one of his miners opens his mouth, I recognize from his phrasing that Hart got the phrasing by listening, like Shakespeare, I mean the Stratford one, not by experience. No one can talk the quartz dialect correctly without learning it with pick and shovel and drill and fuse. I have been a surface miner, gold, and I know all its mysteries and the dialect that belongs with them. And whenever Hart introduces that industry into a story, I know by the phrasing of his characters that neither he nor they have ever served that trade. I have been a pocket miner, a sort of gold mining not findable in any but one little spot in the world, so far as I know. I know how, with horn and water, to find the trail of a pocket and trace it step by step and stage by stage up the mountain to its source and find the compact little nest of yellow metal reposing in its secret home under the ground. I know the language of that trade, that capricious trade, 
that fascinating buried treasure trade and can catch any writer who tries to use it without having learned it by the sweat of his brow and the labor of his hands i know several other trades and the argo that goes with them and whenever a person tries to talk the talk peculiar to any of them without having learned it at its source i can trap him always before he gets far on his road and so as i have already remarked if i were required to superintend a bacon shakespeare controversy i would narrow the matter down to a single question the only one so far as the previous controversies have informed me concerning which illustrious experts of unimpeachable competency have testified was the author of shakespeare's works a lawyer a lawyer deeply read and of limitless experience i would put aside the guesses and surmises and perhapses and might have beens and could have beens and must have beens and we are justified in presumings and the rest of those vague spectres and shadows and indefinitenesses and stand or fall win or lose by the verdict rendered by the jury upon that single question if the verdict was yes i should feel quite convinced that the stratford shakespeare the actor manager and trader who died so obscure so forgotten so destitute of even village consequence that sixty years afterward no fellow-citizen and friend of his later days remembered to tell anything about him did not write the works chapter thirteen of the shakespeare problem restated bears the heading shakespeare as a lawyer and comprises some fifty pages of expert testimony with comments thereon and i will copy the first nine as being sufficient all by themselves as it seems to me to settle the question which i have conceived to be the master key to the shakespeare bacon puzzle end of chapters six and seven